The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 14. Uh, We're going to jump back into the book of Psalms for the next four weeks. Uh, Thus far, over the last few years, we have studied the first 13 psalms together. So, if you miss those or you want to revisit them, they are available online. Um, It's going to take somewhere between 30 and 40 years to do it, but I hope to make it through the whole Psalter before I die. So, you're a part of a lifelong mission here tonight. So, hopefully you can help me pull. Amen. Uh, Just not assuming everybody knows, just a basic intro to the Psalms. They're a collection of songs and poetry that expresses praise, lament, hope, and struggle. They help us learn how to speak to God, how to be honest without being hopeless, how to confess sin, and so much more. King David wrote 73 Psalms, including the 14th, or the 14th, which we will be reading today, Asaph, who was a Levite, and he was also skilled in both writing and playing music, wrote 12 of the Psalms. There's a few other authors sprinkled throughout, including Solomon and Moses, uh, and 51 of the Psalms are anonymous. The Psalms can sometimes feel difficult to relate to, and some of that is because they are more raw than much of our modern-day communication. Uh, For many of us, We have such busy schedules and and plentiful distractions that weeks and months can easily slip by without any real heart-level conversation happening. The Psalms are not neatly packaged or sterile prayers. There is a depth and realness as people cry out in both petition and praise that may seem a bit much to you at first. The good thing is, It doesn't throw God off. He welcomes his people to express the things he can already see in their hearts. God, in fact, delights in this kind of interaction with his children, which is another reason we can be sure his love for us is both real and perfect. For that, I'm thankful. Hopefully you turn to Psalm 14. We're going to read that together. It's seven verses. Here we go. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There was no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Praise God for his word. Well, first of all, I just want to apologize because it's 
obvious, if you go back to verse 1, that David did not get the memo that God is supposed to be a benevolent genie that just you know, makes all your dreams come true on your timeline, right? Did you guys see verse 1? Yikes. Uh, obviously, God is not just about facilitating each person's happiness on their own terms. Uh, man, he comes right out of the gate throwing major shade here and calling people fools. There's no warm-up. There's no run-up. Straight to business, right? But what we see here is not David having a bad day. This wasn't a pre-coffee psalm uh, that he just ripped off here. (laughs) What we see here is God proclaiming through David's psalm writing what the view from heaven looks like. When mankind declares with our mouths or with our lives or both that God is non-existent or irrelevant, we earn the title fools. Now, some of you may have heard the echo of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans in the first few verses. Now, technically, Paul was echoing this psalm as he wrote the beginning of Romans. It's very clear as you see the structure of his argument beginning in 1 and moving through to Romans 3 that this psalm was on his mind. Paul's argument in Romans 3 is that both Jews and Greeks and all mankind are suffering the sickness of sin, and thus we all need the same remedy to be made righteous through faith. In Christ. Romans 3.23 helps us not to be confused and not to create imaginary categories. For many folks, the way they see it, there are good and bad people. What makes someone good or bad depends on many different factors, depending on who you talk to. Paul frees us from this tail-chasing, jello-nailing type of exercise, trying to determine who is good and bad. How does he do that? He does that by writing this. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no human besides Jesus who has walked perfectly in thought, word, and deed. Never sinning, never disobeying God's good commands. We must first understand this. We are born into sin. We choose to sin. And we are justly condemned for our sin. Without this realization of how hopeless we are on our own, we will not recognize or rejoice in the hope that God offers through Christ. This is the path God desires for us to walk. Humble recognition of our sin wherein we repent and receive the free gift of grace and forgiveness offered to us through the finished work of Christ. And he is patiently waiting for as many as possible to walk that path, according to the Apostle Peter, who said, God's not slow, as some count slowness. He is patient, willing that none should perish. Sadly, though, there are many who take another path. And this is described here in the first few verses of Psalm 14. There is no humble recognition of inadequacy on this path. There is no seeking for God. Instead, the fool says in their heart, there is no God, and then lives accordingly. Now, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we don't make a list of the fools we know who need this sermon. 
and then leave here feeling smug and self-righteous. Verse 3 here in Psalm 14, and the way Paul uses these verses to build his case in Romans 3 does not allow for us to think of the person who claims to be an atheist or agnostic, just to think of them, label them a fool, and then prance around on our high horses feeling great about ourselves. Many commentators actually point out that this phrase, there is no God, in verse 1, it's, it's more strictly translated, no God, almost as a declaration, no God. This is not just speaking of someone who, because of intellectual or moral objections, denies God's existence, but every person who even in their heart has declared their desire for no God. The fool here is not how we would maybe use the word. When we think of a fool, we tend to think of synonyms like idiot or simpleton. The Bible here is not so much commenting on academic intelligence as it is moral intelligence. The truth is, every person functions as a practical atheist when we choose to sin. If we believe we know better than God, we don't really believe in the God of the Bible at all. And this is foolish. Now, my words were, I was careful there. I don't want you to maybe overreact or overassume what I'm saying. I said we don't believe in the God of the Bible at all. If we choose to sin and disobey the God of the Bible, well, well, we wouldn't do that because he's a good God and every command he gives is for our good and he's omniscient and omnipotent and he's holy and he sent Christ to die for us. If the God of the Bible is the God we believe in, we have to step into a practical functional atheism to deny or to disobey a God that good. Our disbelief oftentimes is what leads us into sin. Every time that happens is foolish. Are you guys humble enough to say sometimes I'm a fool? Can you say that out loud? Okay. Sometimes I'm a fool. The only difference between those who have trusted in Christ... And the militant atheist in this regard is that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to convict us and shake us from the foolish stupor where we say in our hearts, there is no God, or at least not a God worth obeying, and then act accordingly, fumbling and stumbling into pain and folly. But... I praise God. I hope that you praise God, that he has poured out his spirit upon those who have trusted him by faith. And we are promised he won't leave us in the fog of our ignorant insolence, but burns the haze away with the radiant light of his glory. So now that we hopefully know we are all in the same boat, nobody's going to be riding any high horses out of here. We can talk about how to respond to those who go beyond a practical atheism to proudly professing it. Here's the thing, guys. We are called to be salt and light in the earth as followers of Jesus. Are we not? He's pretty plain about that. Salt can't touch food without changing it. Light will always affect a dark room. Okay? 
This means we can't buy into the wisdom of our day that says, your truth is fine, just don't try to get me to believe it. This kind of subjective morality and, and subjective truth, we, we can't just settle into that, as tolerant and noble as it may seem. Why? Why can't we? Well, it's because we're not talking about something benign here, like who's your favorite sports team? Listen, if you've got somebody that disagrees about a sports team, man, yeah, just drop it. Everyone eat nachos and wings and shut up, right? Like, it's not a big deal. Nobody's dying over that. Nobody's living over that. It doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about the truth of all truths, the question of all questions. Who is God, and how do we relate to him? That matters. On that, we can't shift or move or change or shrink back. We have to be willing to engage with those who, for whatever reason, have come to the answer, no God, to that question. Who is God? How do we relate to him? For many, no God is the answer. We must be willing to engage. Now, that being said, this call to engagement as the salt and light of the earth, let me also say this. If you don't see yourself as a humble messenger, trying to share a good message with someone because you love them and care for their soul, you should keep your trap shut. Okay? I'll amen myself on that. I didn't think I'd get any from you. That's okay. I was ready. But that's the truth, man. You should not... Engage, and you should instead ask God to give you the right attitude to be able to walk in love. Because if your motive is not love, if you're not leading with the love of God, if that's not what's driving you into any given conversation or engagement with somebody that does not yet trust Jesus, then you're going to very likely do more harm than good. We must love those that we're engaging with. Now, uh, Pew Research uh, and some others, but Pew is the main bulk of work that I pulled from, they've pressed into some subgroups of this growing section of our population known as nuns. Now, this is not the sweet ladies with the, you know, Catholic get-up thing. Not nuns, N-U-N-S. This is N-O-N-E-S. Nuns, as in when they're asked, what is your religious affiliation? They say, none. Okay? This group of people grew... By 20 million in the U.S. from 07 to 2015. By 20 million people. A large percentage of them, when you press into why, a large percentage of them are suspicious of or don't like what they would call organized religion or they have some conflict with some certain teachings of the church. Most of them, though, still claim a belief in the supernatural. They oftentimes exhibit a blend of beliefs. What we need to notice here is that David wrote, they say in their hearts, there is no God. The vast majority of people who walk away from an orthodox faith in God or people that refuse to come and consider what it is we claim as Bible-believing Christians, they do so because of emotional wounds that they cannot reconcile. That is the majority case. I'm not saying there is no pure atheist that is only 
and atheists because of intellectual objection. I can't be sure. But what I can be sure is that is not the majority. When we find out someone claims to not believe God exists, we as followers of Jesus need to know that the majority of the time, that's not a conclusion that was arrived at on the basis of empirical scientific data crunching. So even if somebody starts to come at you from that angle, I know many of you are intimidated by a conversation that might lead into the scientific. You feel unprepared and unqualified for that. One thing I would say to you, first of all, is, dear friend, uh, if fear of looking stupid or unqualified keeps you out of a conversation that could have an effect upon somebody's eternity, clearly we're just not looking at the right thing. The Bible uh, gives us several encouragements that uh, God is with us, and because he's with us, if you're in a situation like that, you're not just dependent upon your own academic prowess and ability to access the mental Rolodex and pull up some right answer. And as a matter of fact, most of the time, the conversation's not going to really actually center around a bunch of data points. Uh, it's going to have more to do with somebody's perception based on some kind of emotional hurt. Uh, that's just the truth. And so, Bottom line, A, the Holy Spirit will help you. Don't shrink away. If God opens a door for you to have a conversation, even if it might be difficult, please don't run from that. Please don't make somebody else come and try to pry that door open again if God opens it for you. Um, if somebody starts to come at you from that angle, part of what we need to do is realize that most of the time we need to address issues of the heart as well as the mind. We don't want to get pulled into a conversation where we're just exchanging data points that are uh, basically affected by what, you know, which side of the issue you're looking at it from. That's a waste of everybody's time. I'm going to give you some questions that can be helpful if you're in that situation. Questions like, has God disappointed you somehow? Questions like, what things in the world make you doubt that God is real or good? Those can be helpful in drawing out of someone what those real and deep issues are. See, I'm not saying somebody might not throw some science words at you or maybe even have a well-constructed argument seemingly based around something in the sciences. What I'm saying is, for the vast majority of people, the core root issue, this did not start with an intellectual objection, something deeper. The fool in his heart says, no God. You see, and all of us, we can relate to that. We can, we can relate to that temptation to want to say, no God, no God ruling over me. I want to make this decision. I want to be in charge, whatever that looks like for you. We know that that's in every man and woman. So you come to the conversation. If that person does not have a biblical uh, worldview in terms of how they see mankind, you're coming with some information that they not be, may not be aware of. They may not be aware that they are inclined because of the sinful nature that they inherited from Adam to want to rebel against God, to not have a king, to want to be their own king. But you do know that. Now, how do you respond to that? Well, hopefully we respond with compassion because we're remembering that that was all us at one time and we still struggle with that tendency today. Amen? Now, I'm not saying that we don't study up on things like the cosmological argument and 
the teleological argument, cosmological argument being if the existence of the universe, it, it, it points to an intelligent designer. The teleological argument, design in creation, points to a creator. The anthropological argument, the, the uniqueness of man and our consciousness, it points to there being a relational God. You've got the moral argument for God's existence, the fact that there seems to be a, a set of, of moral standards that you can find throughout humanity, uh, wherever you go and throughout time. It's very hard to find somebody that uh, thinks that, you know, murdering people is a great thing, right? Now, there's been warlike tribes and things like that, but just cold blood, like murdering your friends. There's never been typically a tribe of people that high-five one another because our ethic is we're just going to run around and kill each other. Right. Um, bottom line, there's there are some some strong, and I I called those arguments because that's how they're known. I'm not looking to get in arguments with people. I find that the older I get, not very helpful. But uh, I used to like it a lot. <laughs> uh, but these. Understanding these principles, understanding these evidences, they can be helpful tools in exposing people to the reality that our faith is not based on zero evidence, as some claim. I watched some videos this week of, uh, there's a guy that dubs himself the Amazing Atheist, and he made a video in his garage. Uh, it was pretty lo-fi, but it had 500,000 views, so hallelujah, you know? And his deal, you know, why is he an atheist? Well, because there's no God. I see no evidence for it. I do, <laughs> and I don't think it's because I'm stupid. I might be stupid, but I don't think that's the reason I see that, <laughs> right? I just don't. The question should be, what is the most reasonable conclusion from the evidence we can see? That's the answer. That's the question everyone should be asking. What is the most reasonable conclusion? Now, a smaller percentage of people... Uh, I was talking about nuns as a whole, nuns as a big group, okay? The, the, the larger group is, is the ones we were talking about before, right? Um, still have some vague spirituality. There's this very small percentage within that subset that on the basis of academic or intellectual objection, when they're pushed, they do not believe in God at all, okay? So, and oftentimes they will claim a lack of evidence to prove God's existence, leaves them unable to acknowledge him, okay? So Paul addresses this in Romans 1, more than verse 20, but I just kind of whittled it down to this because it addresses what we're here for. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What's he saying here? That God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they are clearly seen through what? What has been made. What has been made. Okay, so I'm going to make something real quick. Here I have two sticks and a twisty tire that I got off some hamburger buns. Three basic elements. Some of you have probably seen something like this before, but this psalm brought us to a subject we need to, we need to understand how to talk about this. We need to be able to engage. So I've got this twisty tie. I've got two sticks. One's a little shorter than the other. And I'm just taking the twisty tie, basically strapping 
one stick to the other, and now, oh, you are going to hold on there. Now I've got that, right? It's not going to hold, but you see what I'm after. Okay, so I've put two sticks in the shape of a cross. Now, here's my question. Let me ask you this. I'm going to lay this down before it falls apart and you guys laugh at me, because you would do that. Okay, so that's sitting there. If you were sent to a jungle on an expedition to determine if anyone lived there, and you found this thing I just made, it's just two sticks and a twisty tie, man. I couldn't get any simpler of a, of a constructed anything, right? It's three super basic elements, and yet there they are. It's, it's clearly together. It's clearly making a pattern. If you were walking in that jungle, your job is to determine, does somebody live here? What would you assume? My question is, what would be reasonable to assume if you walked upon this cross made out of a bread tie and a couple sticks, leaned against a tree? My question would be, would the responsible beat thing to report back be, well, this, this most likely just happened by chance. We'll just ignore that. Or would the most reasonable response be, this was likely made by someone, so let's keep looking for more evidence that maybe somebody is here. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I don't know what my tone sounds like right now. Again, I have a cold, okay? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be... Uh, overbearing or, or be snarky, I'm really just asking a question. What is the most reasonable thing to assume coming upon this very simple little cross made with two sticks? I think it's to assume somebody made it. Now, maybe somebody out there would disagree with that, but I think at, at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, Somebody should not be ridiculed for saying, well, I, I, think it, I think it means somebody made it. Right? Maybe there is somebody that would say, yeah, that looks more like a natural occurrence to me. I'm like, well, okay. And what, why does this matter? How does this fit into what we're talking about? Well, when, when we look at the world, friends, what do we see? I built the simplest thing I could possibly build here. I thought, you know, I've done this before with a board and nails and, and does the same thing, but this is even simpler. It's a twist tie, man, and two sticks. And yet, you, if you saw that leaned against the tree, you'd assume somebody made it. Most of you would, right? We look at the world, what do we see? We live on a planet so perfectly suited to support life, it cannot be overstated. Not just our planet, its size, its makeup, not just the sun, the type of star that we are revolving around. Not just the type of galaxy that we're in and the gravitational stability that that lends. Not just the fact that we have one moon going around us that just happens to be the right size to be controlling the tides. Not just the fact that we have the atmospheric conditions that are, are so precisely tuned to be conducive to life. Not just that we have fresh water all over this planet and it runs in a cycle that's so absolutely intricate that we don't even totally understand it yet. It's not just all those pieces, man. <laughs> Look at, that's just, that's just the, the planet that we're on. Look at, look at life. Think about life for a second. This is three pieces. 
Very simple. And yet if you walked up and saw them assembled together there, many reasonable people, let me just say that, many reasonable people would come to the conclusion that somebody with some intelligence put that together. That's three pieces. There is roughly 40 trillion cells, 40 trillion cells in your body. And that's a rough estimate, uh, which should humble us. We can't really figure it out, because if you do it by volume, you come up with like 70 trillion. If you use another measurement, it's lower than that. So they kind of averaged it. We can't even actually figure it out. It's so many, and we're so complex. There is multiple systems working right now to keep you upright and able to listen to this riveting sermon that you're listening to. Why are you laughing? You've got a circulatory system pumping blood. You've got a digestive system taking care of lunch and whatever you had after that. You snackers, right? You've got an endocrine system. You've got a lymphatic system, muscular system, nervous system, skeletal system. This, <laughs> these things are not basic, man. The best estimate we can come up with is that there are 9 million species on this planet. Again, an estimate. Some are up into the billions. We can't figure it out. That should humble us. We think there's this many trillion cells. We're kind of, our best guess is that there's 9 million different species on this planet. But we can't even really get our hands around it. Do you know what the cosmic lottery odds are just to get one living species randomly by chance? People have ran these numbers. It's, it's 1 in 10 to the 23rd power. That's an inconceivable number. A mathematician will tell you very quickly. That's easy. That's zero. That's a statistical, statistically ridiculous number. All, I'm just talking about what's reasonable. I'm not trying to cut anybody down. I'm not trying to call, call anybody stupid. Let me say this right now. There are many, many atheists who are far above me in the intellect department, and I will gladly say that. That's not what we're talking about, though. This isn't just about who's smarter. It's about what's reasonable. What's reasonable when you look at all that we have to look at? We can't even create life in a lab. Do you understand that? I don't know, I don't know what... You know, we, we see so many scientific advances that we, I think we just think we can do everything. We can take living things and make other living things out of it. We can take living parts and graft them onto other living parts. We can do some wild stuff. But we cannot take non-living components, some chemicals, some proteins, and whatever. We can't shake them all up, put them in the Easy Bake Oven, and send them through and come out with something living. We can't create life from non-life in a lab. We can't, we, don't, we can't do it. And yet, I'm just asking, so, is it, so then is it reasonable to think on a prehistoric, volcanic, primordial, ooze-covered earth at some point, the, this, by chance that happened one time, we got one single-celled organism, and then, and then a bunch of other by-chance things happened over a really, really, really long time. And we have now... We think nine million species. I realize I'm getting into real deep nerd territory here. Have you ever even just sat and thought about the genetic potential of a seed? Have you ever thought about how seeds work, man? You guys are like, this is the cough medicine. It's not. <laughs> think about it for a second. 
Seeds are amazing. Think about how many different kinds there are, how many different ways plants proliferate and, and, and promulgate themselves. It's amazing. You got pine cones, you got those little helicopter ones. There's some that have to get caught on an animal and carried along, there's some that need to be pollinated by bugs. The diversity, the creativity, the beauty of all that is seen, it shows us something. Paul says plainly it shows us something. The divine nature and the power of the God that created it. So we're without excuse. We should at least be looking for a powerful God to serve instead of making ourselves into our own little kings and queens. Now, we need to say this. Everything I just said, as compelling or not compelling as you thought it was, I don't know. We can't prove God that way, doing what I was just doing, and God can't be disproven that way either because everyone can jump out of a philosophical escape hatch. If you try just doing a fact war, well, somebody at some point when they get tired or feel backed into a corner... There's all kinds of philosophical ways to spin it and just, whoop, I'm out of the, you know, got out. That's not what we're trying to do here. That's, that's not the point of this. All I'm doing, all I did was took a little bit of time to simply say, for the person who has real intellectual objections, who says, I have seen no evidence, no evidence for God, I would just, I would plead with them. We, we're looking at the same thing, friend, and we're seeing something different. And the vast majority of people throughout human history, you, maybe you're smarter than all of them, and that's fine, maybe. But the vast majority of people have had at least a sense that there's something beyond just the physical. They've looked at the evidence and come to that conclusion. Humility helps, doesn't it? What is most reasonable to assume based on the evidence we can see? That's the question. Now, let's, let's be honest. Let's be aware of the fact that a firm, a real, and a vibrant faith in God isn't going to come from examining the evidence. That's not going to happen. It's going to come from surrendering our hearts to him. But sometimes roadblocks to that place of surrender can be removed by a love-motivated conversation. And that's why we should be willing to take the time to study, to think, to prepare ourselves. Peter said, always be ready with an answer for the hope you profess. Hopefully you're showing enough hope in your life that you're being asked for an answer. If nobody's asked you for an answer lately, then maybe back it up a step. Perhaps... I'm not walking in a hope or a light that catch anybody's attention. Maybe my salt and light deal isn't quite functioning correctly. These are good things to judge ourselves by. Amen. That got us through the first few verses there. Uh, let's look at verses 4 through 6 again. Refresh our memories here. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? Do they not call upon the Lord? For they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. 
perhaps you've experienced some of what is described here. Uh, people oppressing or shaming those who love and serve Jesus. Uh, this can come in all different forms and from many different places. The reality is some people living in the darkness and pain of this world without God choose to lash out at him and his people instead of coming to him in humble surrender. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a wounded animal and the way they'll bite and scratch and lash out. Um, basically every human without God in this world is in that position. And so should not be surprised at sometimes what they're capable of. It really does seem like some folks get nourishment and satisfaction from trying to tear down and destroy other people. This tendency is not always pointed at followers of God, but many times it is. Because of the time and place we live, it, it may seem hard for us to relate to this totally. For many Christians throughout history and in other parts of the world today, the real threat of violence and death by those who hate them would make these verses very easy to understand when they hear about uh, you know, things like workers of weakness eating people up as they eat the bread, right? And just that's that's very graphic language. That's there's in that is is destruction, consumption. These these words might be hard for us to relate to, but there are those today that it wouldn't be hard at all. We who live in a far greater degree of comfort and security as believers should pray and seek to help those brothers and sisters every way we can. There are people that this is a vibrant reality for them today. That should strike us. It should cause us to care. It should humble us. Uh, it should do a lot of things. That's the reality. Um, for us, these, what these scriptures are describing, it may look less like imminent death and more like social rejection, loss of job opportunities, or tension with our families. But even these lesser threats can cause us to feel bitter towards people that are coming against us, or sometimes, unfortunately, even against God. Now, though we may be tempted to shame or bitterness, this should not be the response of a people who were dead but are now alive because of Jesus. From these verses, Charles Spurgeon addressed his congregation this way. Oh, but they will point at you. Cannot you, can, cannot you bear to be pointed at? But they will chafe you. Chafe, let them chafe you. Can that hurt a man that is a man? If you are a molluscous creature that has no backbone, you may be afraid of jokes and jeers and jests. But if God has made you upright, stand upright and be a man. He said molluscus. Y'all know what a mollusk is, right? It's a seafood thing that ain't got a spine. He was laying it on them. I agree wholeheartedly with his sentiment. I want to offer you another as well in tandem. I don't know what else he said. I hope he said some more after he <laughs> called everybody seafood in the church. But uh, hallelujah. If he didn't, it's on, you know, and Jesus talked about it. Uh, I'm going to offer you this as well. 
So the other side is Jesus prayed for his tormentors. He died for you and me who rebelled against him. And so this has to change the way we see those who may come against us because of our faith. It says eating up God's people like eating bread. That's how it describes these, these ones coming against and bringing destruction to God's people. It's giving the idea that the people are getting some satisfaction from this destruction they're bringing. And we can either answer in like kind. We can try to fight fire with fire, as they say. Or we can remember what it was like before we tasted real bread. Verse 7. It says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. David had this sense, this looking forward by faith, that salvation was going to come out of Zion, that God's promises, that God was not going to be made a fool of, that the things that were happening to his people, that could not be a constant because of God's good character, because he was mighty and loving, and because David had confidence and he had a plan, but David couldn't see the whole thing. David is talking here. He knows that he knows parts of what's been prophesied, and he's singing about that, and he's clinging to what he knows. But friends, he was looking forward. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know that Jesus came. We know what Messiah looks like. We know how he walked and how he talked. We know what he did. John 6, 35, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Maybe your deal wasn't hurting people or tearing them down, but we have all scavenged in our own way, filling our mouths with that putrid and moldy bread the world has to offer, just trying to stop that gnawing hunger inside. But those of us who have received Jesus by faith We have had that hunger filled. We no longer have to find significance or worth by making others low. We can make ourselves low, knowing that we have already been declared worthy by Christ. Followers of Jesus can freely lift others up instead of putting them down because our value is set, our acceptance is sure, and our Father has declared we are His. So if you are experiencing the promise Jesus gave us that in this world we will have trouble if we follow him. I don't know if you've heard that one before. You probably got some promises on your fridge. It probably ain't that one. In this world, man, you will have trouble. He also said, but don't fear, I've overcome the world. Amen. But if you're experiencing that promise, don't shrink back into the corner. Don't come busting out with malice and anger. Pray that God would give you the opportunity to show whoever comes against you how good the bread of life really is. That's the hope. If you are someone who doesn't like God or his people and you feel better temporarily by lashing out at them, may I be the first to say to you, Friend, there is something better. 
The way of truth and grace and love is open to you. It's what you were made for. And it's where you will find rest from all that wretched scavenging. Please come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Acknowledge that you need him and ask him to meet you where you are. The Bible says he will. The salvation of Israel that comes out of Zion, the source of Jacob's rejoicing, is the source of salvation and rejoicing for all mankind. And his name is Jesus. Praise be unto God. May we all recognize our need for justification by grace through faith. May we all realize our need for sanctification by grace through the working of Christ's Spirit. And may we all walk in humility and love towards those who have yet to experience fullness and satisfaction that comes from tasting the bread of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for Psalm 14. Thank you. Thank you that you don't sugarcoat who we are, what we are, how we struggle. Thank you, Lord, that you tell us the truth. Thank you, God, that you don't just tell us the bad news, but you've fully and completely revealed to us the good news, that there is hope in you. God, I thank you that we don't have to scratch and scrape ourselves. Thank you, God, that we don't have to try to drum up our own means of salvation, but that you've taken care of everything. You've called us to believe you, trust you by faith, to receive the free gift of salvation. We are thankful, God. Because we know, when we really sit and think about it, when we really weigh the scales, we know we could never have paid off the debt we owe. We know, God, we've fallen short of your glory. But thank you that you're willing to wrap us in glory again. You're willing to give us righteousness we didn't earn for ourselves. Thank you that by faith that is possible. Lord, I know for some people within the sound of my voice, they have dealt with real difficult situations, persecution as a result of serving, following you, standing up for your word. God, I just ask, first of all, you'd bring them peace and comfort. God, I ask that your presence would be tangible with them in these times. But God, I also ask that you would increase our capacity for love, that you would help us like you did upon the cross, as Stephen did as he was martyred, God, that your love would overtake us to the degree that those that persecute us, that we genuinely, really, truly care. We love them. We want your best for them. Thank you, God, that we don't have to feast upon the moldy bread of holding others down, but that because you have spoken to our identity, you've given us the identity of sons and daughters of God, we don't have to try to hold others down to feel better about ourselves. We are free we are free to be in a contest with everybody else to outdo one another in showing honor. We're free to be in a contest to see who can get the lowest, knowing that in doing so, we are honoring you, we're magnifying you, we're following in your footsteps. Because Jesus, you went first. You got the lowest when you were the highest. We thank you for the truths of this psalm. Thank you. That where your word and where your truth and where your spirit is, there's freedom.
God, I ask for freedom for these people. I ask you to set them free, God, by the power of your word. God, help us to be doers and not hearers only. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.